Turn with me, please, to the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 20. What I'd like to do, though, I'm, I'm, rather than read the text, I'm going to read the text in a moment. Um, turn, there's Bibles in the back. I'm going to dismiss the kids. Um, we're in John 20, and we're going to be looking again at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, um, let, me, let me just dismiss the kids now. Let me, kids, you're dismissed to go to Children's Church while the rest of us turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20. Again, Bibles in the back if you need, uh, if you need one. I want to do something a little bit... A little bit different this morning. We're going to stay in John 20, but what I want to do is look back, draw back the lens a little bit, and look at the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection, not just from the text, from other texts of Scripture. Usually we stay right in the Scripture, uh, Scripture that we're studying, expository preaching. We're going to do that, but I want to, I want to bring some in some other things to highlight the truth of the resurrection. All four gospel accounts of the one gospel, his name is Jesus, come to a climatic ending with the brutal crucifixion of Christ, the empty tomb three days later, and then the multiple eyewitness appearances. But the gospel are written to that, to that end to show the work of Christ, the empty tomb, his ascension, and what that means for us as believers in Jesus Christ. What are the implications of the resurrection? What, the so what of the resurrection? The importance of the resurrection? So that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning. A little bit different than normal. But if you're tracking with us, this will be our outline. We're going to look again at the proofs of the resurrection. Sort of like an Easter gathering. We're going to talk a little bit more about the proofs. We did a little bit last week. We'll a little more this week. And then we're looking at the person of the resurrection. We're going to see these post-appearances and what they mean for us today. And then we're going to talk about the importance or the, the prominence of the resurrection. All right, the tomb is empty. Christ is risen from the dead. And hopefully we'll answer that question to you with, uh, for you th- this morning. So let's look again at the proof of the resurrection as we, we jump into John chapter 20. Uh, all the gospel accounts have the same story three days later. The tomb is empty. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John who wrote this account, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. No one's expecting a resurrection. And we do not know where they laid him. Verse 3, Peter went out from the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. It's John's way of saying, I'm faster than Peter. I got there first. And they reached, and he reached the tomb first. He stooped in to look. He saw, verse 5, the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face, face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that'd be John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I think he believed, at least believed Mary Magdalene's testimony that the body is gone. 
In John 20, we have several proofs that the testimony of those around the resurrection, that the tomb is truly empty. Last week, I mentioned that the first eyewitnesses of, of the empty tomb was Mary Magdalene, who had, been, uh, had seven demons which Jesus uh, delivered her from. And I mentioned last week that even that speaks to the authenticity and the accuracy of this account because no one in their right mind in the first century would have women as the first line of testimony. They were not considered reliable. They were not allowed to testify in court. They were seen as inferior. We don't believe that here. I'm just telling you what they said in the first century. So no one in their right mind would get a a, a, a religion off the ground by putting women as their eyewitnesses. We also said there were several other eyewitness proofs. I didn't mention this last week, but let me mention it this week. If you read the four gospel accounts, you will read that those disciples, those apostles of Jesus, running scared for their life. That's what they were doing. They were locked behind closed doors. They, they were not believing the women. In fact, they said they were delusional. And they're scared and they're oblivious no matter how many times Jesus told them, I'm going in the tomb, I'm coming back in three days. You find the apostolic band scared to death. No one in their right mind would write a story, putting themselves in the story, making themselves as scared wimps. Another testimony. As the apostles look in, they see, John sees, that there has been uh, there's an empty tomb, and the linen clothes are just lying there, and the one around Jesus' head is folded. I mentioned last week, obviously no one stole the body. If anybody ever had your car broken into, even if it's not much they took, it's a mess, right? They break in, they take what they got to take, and they're getting out of there fast. They did the same thing back then. Grave robbers would go and rob, and they would not leave a tidy tomb. Even the absence of the Roman guards in the gospel witness speaks to its authenticity. They fled the scene, and according to Matthew, when the ground shook, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And the scripture says, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Do you realize that a guard could be put to death for leaving his post? No guard at the tomb speaks again of its authenticity. It wasn't like they ran for cover because the three fishermen came with a fishing pole and said, get out of here. Them not being there, the tomb is empty, the guards flee, speaks of its authenticity. We know that the Jewish authorities didn't take the body because they would have paraded around Jerusalem four days later, five days later. In fact, Matthew tells us what the religious leaders did when they found out that the tomb was empty. Matthew 28, it says this. Some of the guard went into the city, they fled the scene, and told the chief priest all that took place. And when they had assembled with the elders, they took counsel. The elders and the religious people gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said to the soldiers, tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, that's Pilate, we will testify to him and keep you out of trouble. Here's some money. You fell asleep. They stole the body. The, the believers stole the body. So they took the money, it says, as they did, and they were just as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, think about this for a minute. Not really a very 
thorough, thought-out story. Take the money, tell everybody that while you were sleeping, the disciples came and took the body. My question is, if you're sleeping, how do you know? How do you know? the? It's a silly story. I mean, how do you know the body was taken by the disciples if, if you're asleep? Didn't go very well. Didn't make up. It didn't make sense. Tomb is empty. The women testify. The soldiers testify. Peter and John testify. The grave clothes testify to an empty tomb. And now the religious leaders testify to an empty tomb. Verse 11. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary, she's back at the tomb now, weeping outside the tomb. And she wept. She stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain at one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. Again, no one's expecting a resurrection. And I do not know where they had laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Again, we said last week that Jesus reveals himself to Mary in a beautiful, beautiful way. He asks her some questions, and then he turns and he calls her name Mary. A beautiful way to show his love for her as she sat there just weeping at the tomb. I said last week, and I just want to mention it quickly. Culture tells us to look within yourself to figure out who you are, your identity, your personhood, your value, your significance in life. But most of us know that's just like a gerbil running on a wheel. You run, 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 you never, ever stop. And what may work today in feeling good about yourself may not work tomorrow when things don't go the way you want. I heard a story once about a woman who was in a very deep, long-term relationship. And while she was in this deep relationship, things began to get turbulent, and it ended. And as she was just disintegrating because her, her whole personhood was involved in this relationship, she went to a counselor for help. And the counselor told her, you know what, this is what you need to do. You need to go back to school, get your degree, get a job, make something of yourself. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? Nothing wrong with working hard, nothing word wrong with going to school, nothing, word, word, uh, nothing wrong with getting some satisfaction for what you do. I love what I do. But this woman realized what many of us realize, what if that doesn't work? Or worse yet, what if it does work and I still feel a sense of, uh, of a lack of value and personal worth and significance in my life? What if I still feel not loved and unconditionally accepted? We know how imperfect we are. We know how imperfect other people are. Nothing will satisfy our souls. Nothing will satisfy the deep longing of our souls to be unconditionally loved 
even in those dark moments of our life, and wonderfully and totally accepted to have that secure identity, even in the dark stuff, until you hear Jesus call your name. Mary. Jesus is saying, is, know me. Know me, be united with me. The risen Christ, know my love, know my grace for you. When you know my love and you know my grace, you'll know yourself. The deepest secrets of who you are, let your heart settle on me and the gospel. Look at the cross and see how broken and sinful and, and, and difficult life can be. Look at, look at the cross and see your brokenness, your sin, but look back at the cross and see how you're loved, how you're valued, how you're cared for. Get lost in me and you'll be totally, wonderfully accepted and loved. Just look at me. And what does Mary do? Mary, after hearing her name, after Jesus reveals himself and speaks her name, she clings to Jesus. She runs to Jesus, not the other way around. We don't run to Jesus. He pursues us. And when he pursues us, he calls our name. We cling to him. And notice that Jesus comes out of the tomb, makes himself and reveals himself to Mary, and Mary clings to him. And think back for a minute, because there's the theory out there that says that Jesus fell asleep on the cross, that he just kind of passed out. They put him in the tomb, and, you know, it was cold and damp in there, and he awoken. 75 pounds of spices on him, beaten, crucified, hung in the hot sun for six hours or so, and then came back to life. If that were true, Mary wouldn't have clung to him. She would have called 911. He would have been in ICU. There's a theory out there that also says that everybody, all the people that saw Jesus alive, because the tomb is empty, hallucinated. They hallucinated. Everyone had this group hallucination, and they saw Jesus alive. Well, people don't hallucinate in groups, number one. And even if it was self-induced, you still don't see the same thing. Unfortunately, I could testify to that. <laughs> the tomb is empty. This is, not, this is not philosophy. This is history. Now, I want to take you on a little historical trail. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts, if you have one, if not, that's okay. In Acts chapter 25, I'm going to lay this out for you. We're talking about an empty tomb. We're talking about testimony. All the testimony at the tomb is empty. In Acts chapter 25, the apostle Paul is a prisoner. He is in Caesarea. Caesarea has a new governor. His name is Festus, the governor, new governor, Festus. Festus wants to talk to Paul. Festus wants to bring Paul out of prison and question him about this Christianity. Fortunately, King Agrippa II is also in Caesarea. So what Paul, excuse me, what Festus does, Festus like, let's bring Paul out, let's talk to him. And now that the king is in town, King, why don't you join me and the two of us, Governor Festus, King Agrippa II, will question Paul about this Christianity. You follow me? Let me put this also in historical perspective. Agrippa II is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one that wanted all the boys two years and under to be murdered because of the wise men, that the Messiah was born. And when the wise men didn't come back and tell him, he said, kill everyone two and under. That's Herod the Great. His son is the one that killed John the Baptist, had his head chopped off. His son, Acts 12, is persecuting the church. 
His son, Agrippa II, is this guy. So he was around during Jesus. He was a small child, but his whole family knows the stories that are out there. From Herod the Great to Herod to uh, Antipas the, the first and the second. He knows. They know. He's well aware of what's going on. Okay? So you follow me? You got the historical perspective? He's around during the time of Christ. Chapter 25, verse 26, Paul begins to speak to this king and to the governor, and it comes right down to the resurrection. Chapter 26 of Acts, verse 22. Listen to the word of the Lord. Paul speaking, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, the Old Testament scriptures, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, the Jew, and to the Gentile. The Old Testament speaks about it. Christ himself has spoken about it, what has taken place. Okay, follow me? And he had, as he was saying these things in his own defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I'm going somewhere with this. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows, now he turns to King Agrippa II, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not talking about philosophy, I'm talking about history. Not, not subjective truth or the subjective realm, but objective historical reality. The entire passage in Acts is Paul's argument why he did not want to believe in the resurrection, but he had no choice because the risen Christ was standing before him. The eyewitness testimonies of the risen Christ and the empty tomb, and he turns to the king and he's like, listen, this is not something that's been done in a corner somewhere. This is open public facts. The tomb is empty. Hundreds have seen the risen Christ. I didn't want to deal with it either. But I had no choice. I was confronted with the reality of the empty tomb. Women's testimony, the soldier's testimony, Peter and John's testimony, the grave clothes, the religious leaders, the testimony of history, the testimony of the Old Testament, testimony of the New Testament, and Christ himself. There's a lot of testimony of the empty tomb. Now, as we get into the person of the resurrection, we're going to see, as we continue to study John, we're going to see these, these post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Okay, but before I do that, let's, let's, just, let's just stop for a minute and, and talk about the eyewitness testimony of the angels. In John chapter 20, in our text, verse 13, the angels asked Mary, why are you weeping, Mary? Why are you weeping? Why did the angels ask Mary, why are you weeping? Because there was no reason to weep. Jesus is alive. The angels said in, John, in Matthew 28, when he appeared to some other women, don't be afraid, the angel says. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just like he said. He, he's, he's not here. 
Why are you weeping? Why are you looking among the dead? He's alive. That's the angel's testimony. In John 20, we see the first testimony of Mary. As I said, she clings to Jesus. And Jesus says, look, stop holding on to me. I'm going to send to my father. I have not gone yet. But what I want you to do is go, and I want you to go tell my brothers, go tell the followers that I've risen from the dead, but I've not yet ascended. Okay? So we've got the post-resurrection appearance. Now, in your Bible, if you turn to 1 Corinthians, again, I want to do a little jumping around today. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 Paul is speaking to the church of Corinth and telling them what's the most important, first most important thing that they could know. Chapter 15, verse 3. I got it on the screen. Christ died for our sins, right? I've delivered to you. It's most important what I've received, that Christ died for because of our sins. He dies as a substitute for our sins, according to the scripture. He was buried, went into the tomb. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Isaiah spoke about it. The Psalms spoke about it. And Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Mark this in your Bible. Most of whom are still alive. That's important. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Acts chapter 9, Paul on his way in the road to Damascus, gets knocked upside the head and off the horse he goes, the risen Christ. Hundreds of eyewitnesses saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Many have touched him, had lunch with him. Go and ask him. That's what, Peter, that's what Paul's saying. Paul is writing the letter of Corinth about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why he could say, listen, hundreds of people have saw him. You know what? A lot of people are still alive. A public document speaking of the resurrection of Jesus and says, go and ask those people. Many people are still alive. And in those days, what's called the Pax Romana, it means that Rome had this relatively peace in Rome. They had built large roadways for communications for the military. There was a lot going on that day where word got out, communication got out. And Paul's like, listen, hundreds of people have saw him. Go ask him. Go ask him. Don't, don't just listen to me. Go see what they say. There's only 20 years after the resurrection. And as we see, we'll see next week, the week after, next couple of weeks, Jesus shows up, doors are locked. John chapter 20. Doors are locked. Jesus shows up in the midst of them. Thomas, one of the 12 in verse 25 of chapter 20, says, you know what? I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to believe that. When I see the scars, when I put my hand in his hand, when I, when I put my hand in his side where the sword went in, you know what? I'll believe when I see it. What does Jesus do? Jesus shows up eight days later. <laughs> He's like, all right, I heard you, Thomas. I heard you eight days ago. Come here. Put your hands right here. See? Put your hand right here. Touch my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And then Thomas does what is right, and the only response is worship. My Lord and my God, I've seen the risen Christ. In chapter 21, Jesus comes. His disciples are fishing. Fishermen have gone fishing. That's what fishermen do. These fishermen, though, aren't catching any fish. So the carpenter, Jesus, yells, put your net on the other side. Probably thinking, what does this guy know? They put the net, and what do they do? They catch a load of fish. A boatload of fish, pardon the pun, but a boatload of fish. Doors are locked. 
Jesus shows up, puts his hand in my side. Now, John, who, who's writing this eyewitness account, wrote this very interesting verse. Listen to this verse. Same guy. Ate with Jesus, touched, watched the side, everything. He writes this verse. Very important. First John 3, 2. Beloved, John says, we are God's children now. We've come to faith in Christ. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be God exactly like that, but we will be like him in the sense of being perfectly human with a new glorified body. It will come to us who are wonderfully redeemed and, and our new bodies will last eternally as Christ is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us a glimpse of, gives us a glimpse that we will be raised as well, personally and bodily. That's what the resurrection teach us. Now, the Greeks didn't believe in it. The Romans didn't believe in it. And the Jewish people believe there's one resurrection. It's the end of time, according to Daniel 12. But look at this. Look, look, look at the risen Christ. Look at the testimony of Christ after his resurrection. Mary clings to him. Thomas puts his hands in his side. Luke 24, <laughs> Jesus comes to them, and they're like, we can't believe this is him. He's truly bodily risen from the dead. Jesus has touched me. Touch me, come here, touch me. I mean, you can only imagine this scene like, I'm not going first, you go first, you know what I mean? See, he says, the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, touch me. And then, really cool, he turns around and goes, you know what? You got anything to eat around here? I've been in, you know, grade three days, I'm kind of hungry. They're like, oh yeah, we got some fish. And he eats fish. He eats fish. And John 21, he's barbecuing. He's got a barbecue going. Why is that important? What, what does that mean? What, he's, 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 he's cooking, he's eating, he's touching, they're, they're fellowshipping. What does that mean? The author wants us to know this morning. The author, author wants us to know this morning that Jesus had a physical body. He was a man with a body that can eat, touch, feel, walk with people. He's the body as he's walking on the road to Aramaeus. He appears to two men. He breaks bread with them and then vanishes. Bodies that go through walls, bodies that taste food, bodies that walk and hug and fellowship with one another, join friendships with one another. We shall be like him. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul understood this. He says, for in this tent, meaning body, we groan. In this body we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we were still in this tent, we groan being burdened so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Notice that. It doesn't say death. What's mortal may be swallowed up by death. No, 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 no. When we leave, mortal must be swallowed up by life. Life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Listen, leaving this place, the land of the dead, we go to the land of the living. 
Not the other way around. Not unclothed when we die, but fully clothed. Our new bodies are not going to be less physical, but more physical. That's the future of those who trust in Christ. Our bodies will do what it was meant to do, what it was created to do, before sin, before brokenness, before evil, before the curse. We don't know exactly, but we do know this. We know that we get a glimpse of the reality of life eternal because the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the grave. I mentioned this once before, but growing up, we had the Bible in my mom's bedroom. I mean, it must have been that big. You ever see one of those? And they got these floating angelic-like beings with harps and in a diaper, heaven. That's hell if you see me in a diaper, not heaven. The Bible teaches us the tomb is empty, Christ is risen. We will have a glorified body, we will live with Christ, we will walk with Christ, we will fellowship with believers. But fulfilling a deep longing of our souls and satisfaction, we cannot completely understand, but that is our future. When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, there's a completely healed material world. I mean, why did the Jews worship Jesus? They know, what Paul knew, he's a theologian, he's a Pharisee. Violation of the first command, have no other God before me. Why would the monotheistic serve one God, monotheistic one God, why would they worship Jesus in the flesh if not they encountered the risen Christ? That made all the difference. It's not just simply something Jesus said was true, although that's true. But he's risen from the grave. He's alive today, still forgiving sin. Still forgiving sin. Now, as we get into this last point, the prominence of the resurrection, I know it's getting late, but we got, we got to put our thinking cap on here, okay? Because I, I want to talk to you about what's important about it. Because you may be here today, and you may be thinking, all right, all right I mean, I grew up around Easter, tomb is empty. What's the implication? What, what's the importance? What's the prominence, the reality that Christ has risen from the grave? So what? Let me give you three things. The second one won't be so long, but let me give you the first one, which is very important. First one is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the grounds of our acceptance before God. Okay? Our grounds of our acceptance before God. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Who, that's Jesus, was delivered up for our sins, our trespasses, and raised from the dead for our what? Justification. See that? Now, during the Great Reformation, which we've been studying, we've been reading, and we're going to do a book study, I hope, in June, called What is Reformed Theology by R.C. Sproul. During the Great Reformation, one of the great questions came to the forefront of the movement was this question, and it's vitally important for you this morning as well. How can a sinner, how can those who, who, who rebel against God be made right, be just before a holy God? How can a sinner be made right just before a holy and perfect God? Now, the Roman Catholic Church was teaching and still teach that the way to do that is infused righteousness, infused justification. In other words, you, you start with the baptism sacrament, and then you continue with the sacrament, you do the right things, you continue with your penance, and you are then becoming righteous. It's infused righteousness. Okay, becoming righteous. During the Protestant Reformation of 1517, 
there was a rediscovery of what the scriptures teaches concerning that way in which we can be made right with God. How do we become in relationship with God? How do we have a relationship and be made right with God? It's, it's not an infusion, but an imputation of righteousness. The justification that belongs to us is not something that's infused. It is something that's counted. It's something that's reckoned. It's imputed righteousness. One of the reasons that it went askewed as it did is because back in the, in the medieval times, uh, back before 1500s even, they used what's called a Latin Vulgate. Many of you, if you come from the Roman Catholic, I'm not beating on the Roman Catholics, but you need to know this truth. The Latin Vulgate is the Latin Bible. It's written in Latin. And they would use a Latin Bible. And the word justification comes from the Latin word justificare. And it means to make righteous. And they say, well, you need to be made righteous. Therefore, you need the sacraments. You need, the, you need all this stuff so that you can be righteous. One of the things you will find in the Reformers, if you do any research on the Reformers, is they were going back to the original language, to the Greek, to the Hebrew a little bit of Aramaic. They wanted to go back to the original language. What did, it, what did Paul really write? And they found out that the Greek word for justification isn't to make right, but to count right, to reckon, to declare just, to declare someone righteous. It's a big difference. So it's, it's a legal, it's a forensic term. It's not infused, it's imputed. And you could read with me here in Romans 3 and just think of this, think this through. All have sinned, that's you, that's me, fall short of the glory of God, the perfection that God wants from us, and are justified, just, made right, forgiven, forgiven, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been what? Justified by faith. Sola fide. We have peace with God now, justified by faith in Christ through the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam. So one act of righteousness, that's the perfect obedience to the law of God all the way to the cross that Jesus went through. One act of Christ leads to justification, being made right and life for all men. For... As by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus' righteousness, the many will be made righteous. It's not infused as if we work hard and somehow we inherently become righteous. It's the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So justification is the act of God, the sovereign act of God, where he declares us just, righteous, the believing sinner, even though while we're in a state of still failing and sinning against God. It doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're righteous in the sense that we have perpetual perfectness, if I can use that term, or, or a, a, a sense of just um, you know, perpetually being perfect. That's not what it means. Think of it like this. Think of justification being just as a two-sided coin. One side, justice. The justice of God has been served on Christ. He dies on a cross. He pays for our sins. We're before the cosmic throne of God in Judgment Day. Jesus takes our judgment, and now God can declare believers in him, Jesus died for my sins, not guilty, or at least not, not guilty, but forgiven. 
Okay? The other side of the coin, because being declared, being declared, un, you know, being declared forgiven is one thing. We still have no righteousness of our own. We still have no righteousness of our own. We still cannot approach a holy God and say, I followed everything you did. We still can't. Even if we're forgiven, we're still unrighteous. God then imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. So on one coin, we are just. God, Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. The wrath of God's poured out on him, and we are forgiven of our sins completely in the courtroom of God. And then Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, and his perfect life, his obedience to the law, his following the commands of his Father is imputed to us. Not infused, imputed, counted in our accounts. That is the good news of the gospel. Because if it's infused, I'm going to hell. There's no good news without imputation. There's no good news without imputation. Imputation. Now, this is what Martin Luther called it. Maybe some of you have heard this before. Simul yestus et peccatora. That's in Latin. It means simul, which means simultaneously at the same time. Justus is the Latin word for for righteous or just, et means and, and peccator means sinner. So what, what Martin Luther said is, at the same time, we are just and sinners. We are just and sinners. We know we're not perfect, but we are just because of Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us. His death on the cross is our death, and we died. Our sin went into the grave with Jesus, right? You following me so far? Jesus alone obeyed the law perfectly and his righteousness is imputed to us and his death takes away our sins. John Calvin wrote this in the Institutes. A man will be justified by faith when, excluded from the righteousness of works, his own works, he by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ by faith and clothed in it appears in the sight of God, not as a sinner in the sight of God, but as righteous. Thus, we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. And we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, end quote. Family, maybe some of you have heard this a million times. We need to keep hearing it. You're not earning your way. You're not going to infuse any righteousness. I don't care how hard you try. Your righteousness, according to Scripture, is a filthy rags before God. You can't pay the penalty for your sins. By faith in Christ, by faith in Christ, he died for my sins. His righteousness has been given to me. Alone is the only way that we could be made right with God. Is the only way we could be made right with God. Now, back to Romans 4. Talk about the resurrection justification. Look what it says. Verse 4, verse 21. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Abraham's righteousness was not, you know, Abraham was a man of faith. Read Genesis. But Abraham had some messed up days, let me tell you. If it was because of his own righteousness, we're all in trouble. Okay? So, Paul's making the argument. Verse 4 Chapter 4, verse 21 of Romans. Abraham, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I'm convinced, God, you're able to do what you promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Faith in God. Sole fide. 
But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for us, ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see what he's saying? Christ's substitutionary atonement was was finished on the cross, victory over sin, death, and hell, and, and the enemy, but the resurrection was essential to confirm the efficacy of his death. If Jesus Christ stayed in the tomb, Christianity is is a mockery. There's no gospel. There's no validity of the atonement that Jesus can die for our sins. There's no reconciliation. We're wasting our time. Go home. But because Jesus did rise from death and came out of the tomb, the Father has declared his sacrifice as acceptable as our justification and the righteousness required in faith in Christ. R.C. Sproul, great teacher, said this, our justification in this theological sense, the fact that the tomb is empty, he's risen from the dead, our justification in this theological sense rests on the imputated righteousness of Christ. So the reality of that transaction, us being imputated to Christ, is linked to Christ's resurrection. Had Christ not been raised, we would have a mediator whose redeeming work in our behalf was not acceptable to God, end quote. By raising Christ from the dead, listen, God placed the approval and acceptance of the work of Christ, suffering and dying on the cross for our sins. It's a public demonstration confirming that his sin-bearing death had been effective for the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of Christ is grounds for our justification. And second, Just quickly, the genuineness of his work. We already went through this, but let me just read one verse to you. Romans 1, 4. Well, four verses, but one one place. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, concerning his son, who was a descendant from David, according to the flesh, humanly speaking, and he was declared to be and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the word declared means to mark out, to appoint, to determine. For though Christ was the Son of God before his resurrection, here he openly is declaring it, appointed as to the world, through this, this, this magnificent, magnificent, transcendent, and crowning event, death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, in all of history, he's definitively marked off as the God, the Son, who died and rose again. Listen, his resurrection validates everything he ever said. It validates all his teaching. It validates all his promises. It validates all who he says he was as the eternal God, the Son, by the resurrection of the grave. Grounds of acceptance, genuineness of all that he did and said, and finally and lastly, one last verse in 1 Corinthians, guarantees our future. The resurrection guarantees our future. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Paul is arguing because somebody said, ah, the resurrection already happened, or hasn't happened. So Paul's arguing, and he says, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. If Christ is not risen, our preaching, not, not the actual method, but the message 
of the gospel is in vain. We're wasting our time. In fact, you know what? I love going around getting beat up, dragged around, stoned, and all the things that shipwrecked, and all the things that happened to me because I have nothing better to do in life. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up, beaten up and dragged out of cities. One of the things I've always wanted. And he's like, and if I'm preaching, and that's in vain, the message is in vain, then you know what? Your faith is in vain. I mean, people lost their families. They're being ridiculed, hated, rejected. Paul's like, you know what? If my message is in vain, your response is in vain. Biblical faith is not some pie in the sky. It's about the object of our faith, and that's the risen Christ. That is the risen Christ. A dead Savior uh, cannot give life. Not worthy of trusting and believing in. But Jesus rose from the grave. Look at the next verse, 15. We have been found in misrepresenting God if the Christ had not been raised. Because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still dead in your sins. You see the connection with being justified and being forgiven? Right? If, if Jesus is dead, Christianity is worthless and accomplishes nothing and we're without hope, we're without help if Christ had not risen from the grave. We're not justified, we're not forgiven if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, but he did rise. Look at verse 18. Then, if Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep, that means death, have perished. If in Christ, verse 19, we have hope in this life only, we're preaching Christ is nothing about the afterlife, we are all people most to be pitied. We're a joke. And verse 20 says it all, though. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The firstfruits is an Old Testament. God would tell the Israelites, listen, we're going to give you a harvest. I'm going to give you a harvest. And when the harvest comes up, the first crops, I want you to get all the first crops and bring it to me. A demonstration of your faith in me, your trust in me, that I've blessed you and... I'm going to bless you again. It was an act of faith. Let's bring the first fruits to the Lord, knowing and trusting that more is to come. Paul takes that and says, you know what? The tomb is empty. Christ is risen from the grave. And guess what? He's the first fruit. More to come. There's more to come. He's just the beginning. Praise God. Christ's own resurrection from the dead shows us uh, that the inauguration of the kingdom has come. Death has been defeated we can be assured of the eternal kingdom that will never end, and we get to go into that kingdom with him. It all comes down to this. Only Jesus Christ has gone to death and come back to tell us what's on the other side. No philosopher, no religious leader, no one has died and come back to life. No one can tell you what happens but Jesus. He's the only one to have died and buried and came back and ascended. And because he's alive today, he still forgives sins. He still hears your prayers. He's still reigning and ruling from above. In fact, the resurrection, I've said this before, is the cosmic receipt. It's proof positive that he forgives people and that his death on the cross is efficacious, sufficient, to reconcile you to God. The resurrection teaches us that we can be forgiven. And life awaits for us on the other side. Where there's no more pain. Listen, no more injuries, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more brokenness, no more wars. That awaits those who believe in Jesus Christ. Guarantees our future. It shows the, the, the genuineness 
of all that Jesus said. And is the grounds of our acceptance, God put a stamp, forgiven, justified. Do you understand that? That's how important the resurrection is. Now I'm going to read a story. The band's going to come up. Just give me one more minute. Listen to this story. It's a great story. John Piper speaks about it in his book called God is the Gospel. Let me read it to you. He says, imagine a group of American prisoners of war being held behind a barbed wire camp with little food and filthy conditions near the end of the Second World War. Think, think this through with me. On the outside of the fence, the captors are free and go about their business as though they don't have a care in the world. Inside the fence, the captured soldiers are thin, hollow-eyed, unshaven, and dirty. People are dying every day. And then somehow a shortwave radio is smuggled into the barracks. There's finally a connection with the outside world and the progress of the war. Then one day, the captors are on the outside of the fence. They see something very strange. Inside the fence, there's still the weak, the dirty, the unshaved Americans. But they're smiling and laughing. A few of them are giving shouts with high fives and throwing pans into the air. What makes this so strange to everyone outside the fence is that nothing's changed. These American soldiers are still in captivity. They have no food and no water. Many are still sick and still dying. But what the captors don't know is that what these soldiers do have, and that is news. The enemy lines have been broken through. The decisive battle of liberation has been fought. And the liberating troops are only miles away from the camp. Freedom is eminent, and that makes all the difference, end quote. You see? The physical resurrection of Christ gives to those who love him and trust him the guarantee that Christ has come into the world and has fought the decisive battle against Satan, sin, death, and hell. The war will be over soon, and there is no longer any doubt as to who will win. Christ won, Christ will win, and he will liberate and heal all those who have put their faith and their hope and trust in him. Christ's resurrection guarantees for us who believe the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins, the future experience of wholeness, love, mercy, grace, and peace that will be inconceivably glorious. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He paid the debt. Three days later, rose from the dead. The tomb family is empty. Jesus is alive. Therefore, his offer of love, his offer of grace, his offer of forgiveness is still available by faith. We can be justified and clothed in his righteousness, not our own. It's only available, not only available, but it guarantees our future. So I want to close with this response. If you've never trusted Christ, do so today. The tomb is empty. He died for sins. The stamp is there. We are justified and made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ and him alone. Maybe you need to get to that place and just say, I'm done. I give my life to Christ. But if you're a believer here as well, I think a proper response is, praise God. It's not about me. It's about him. Let me always remember it's about him. Father, thank you for your great work. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died an atoning death, who rose three days victorious over sin, death, and hell. And now by faith we can have forgiveness of sins and be clothed not in our own goodness and morality, but be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is our only hope. Help us to respond in faith as we sing to you, the one true God.